Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Jungle to talk about how they wrote, recorded, and produced the album Loving in Stereo. Jungle is the electronic music project of producers Josh Lloyd Watson and Tom McFarland. Having known each other since the age of nine, living as neighbours in West London's Shepherd's Bush, the pair spent a large amount of their teenage years immersing themselves in a variety of music and other creative endeavours. But it was in 2013 that they decided to come together and form Jungle, a collective project emphasising the aesthetic of their artwork and videos, as well as their music. Keeping their identities out of the project's focus, the pair became referred to as J and T. In 2014, having only released one previous single, Jungle made a breakthrough with the track Busy Earning, released on XL Recordings. The track reached the top 20 of the UK indie charts and was heavily used by TV and games, paving the way for the release of their self-titled debut album, which certified gold and earned them a nomination for the Mercury Prize and BBC Sound of 2014. Having spent time touring with the seven-piece Jungle Ensemble and working between LA and London, the band's second album, Forever, arrived in 2018 with co-production from regular collaborator Inflow. Evolving with a richer, more kaleidoscopic blend of neo-soul and R&B, the album reached number 10 in the UK album charts. Jungle's latest album, Loving in Stereo, released on their own label, Kayola Records, in August 2021, saw the pair turn the tables and reignite the dance floor. Packing in driving grooves and joyful exuberance, the album reached number three on the UK charts. Today, I'm at Jungle HQ in Shepherd's Bush, West London, and I'm joined by Josh. And what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Talk About It. It is Talk About It by Jungle from Loving in Stereo. And I'm very pleased to say that I am sat in Jungle HQ in Shepherd's Bush with one half of Jungle, Josh. How you doing? Hello. Nice to see you again. Great to see you. Thanks for welcoming us into your your world. Into the Um, uh, humble abode. It is. It's nice to be in here. So is this where the record was recorded then? This is where the record was finished. Um, Yeah, we kind of came into this space to finish it. Um, We moved from placed in east london and this record was made all over we did it um sort of over two years bits and pieces getting little ideas everywhere and kind of a lot of it was made in east london just off um brick lane we we had this house and we had this sort of back garden room that was sort of really nice and it wasn't soundproof at all wasn't a studio really it was basically a shed we made most of it and then kind of got to the end of it and had to move here and um you know we moved back home and set up this space and Finished it. It was nice to get into a like a this is like a quite a solid sounding room, and it's a bit more of a like let's go. What are we doing? Yeah, let's, let's finish this thing. Yeah. So West London drew you back. You couldn't get away from West London because your roots are here. 
Yeah, we grew up in Shepherd's Bush, just up on the Goldhawk Road, opposite um, Townhouse Studios. T-Mac will always say it's famously where Blur smashed the bottle on the pavement for Park Life. I don't know if that's true. But, you know. <laughs> well, that's a good story, though. And you lived opposite. Do, do you think that had an effect? Do you think that inspired you? You thought, that's a recording studio. We want to be there. I think it must have done in some way. Um, T's parents were always kind of amazing because they let us have this sort of basement room in, in the house. And we kind of always had drums and stuff set up. And, you know, we'd always jam in there. So there was always somewhere to go after school and make music and play music. And it's actually kind of funny because our first band which was called L-Shaped Room, I think you played one of the tracks. I think we'd entered this competition, this thing called Emma Genza, Emma Genza. It right. was at the Storia. It was like a battle of the bands. I mean, we must have been 14. I think you played the first track from that band. It was, And the funny thing is, I can't remember what it was called. It was, it was either called um, Twice Before and She Said or something like that, where these like indie rock songs and... That was the first thing. We, we were on uh, John Kennedy Exposure. Wow, that is amazing. I didn't know that. That's 16 years ago. Wow. God. No. <laughs> I mean, that was three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, L-shaped room inspired by the novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was um, a good friend of mine, long-time friend called Otis. Um, we sat in an English class and I was like, you know, well, what's the band going to be called? And it was on the reading list for that year. So just picked it out and there we went. And funny enough, that's where the re name for the record came from. We had a, another song called Loving in Stereo and... That was like one of the first songs we wrote when we were that age. It was kind of like a folky song. It was almost like a thrills copy. And that's where the uh, the album name came from eventually. So it was just lying around, lying around. And we wanted something that kind of felt like we were kind of going back to the beginning. And it, it was kind of hooky. It reminded us of um, some sort of... We were listening to Supergrass a lot back then. And uh, it kind of had that like, you know, pumping on your stereo vibes or... Yeah. This sort of Otis Redding vibe, like loving in stereo. You know, everything was sort of... They, they were trying to show that off back then, so... Yeah. Wow. So the title of the new album, Loving in Stereo, goes all the way back to when you were a young teenager just starting out in music and your first band. Which brings us back to you. L-shaped room. Wow. God, it's all interconnected. <laughs> it this is, is amazing. It? <laughs> I didn't realise that. That's fantastic. And I mean, it's a great title and it's a great album. I can't. It's one of those infectious albums, I think. I just keep listening to it all the time and I've been doing quite a bit of DJing at this bar and mm. I always play at least one track Amazing. from this record just because it just feels nice hearing it on a big speaker Thank and you. all that Thank kind of you, stuff yeah. and talk about it is a good example of terms of a you know just seems like an instant hit instant head nod instant mm. foot tap yeah know. talk about it. it's an interesting one it's kind of an early one that happened in the process and one that sort of signaled this sort of this new area for jungle and it was a lot to do with kind of coming off the grid and, and just sort of jamming these ideas down. And, and me and a close friend of mine called Inflow, we, would, we were out in LA and we were just in this studio called DTLA, which is an amazing space. Really, really big studio. Just open plan, the desk. It's kind of like Paul Epworth's place in um, North London, the church. You know, there's mm. a big Neve desk in the middle of the room. And um, we had these the drums, vibraphones, all these things just like scattered across the room. There's a picture of it online. And... Um, yeah, we just started jamming and, and there was no, you know, no grid. We used to make music by kind of picking the tempo first and being like, cool, what tempo, which would sort of dictate where you went with it, you know, when rather than letting yourself dictate where the music went with the vibe, you know, which is what we did that time, we would just press record with no click. So however we played would set the tempo. And, and usually, um, you know, when, you, when you're kind of on computers and you're working on Pro Tools or Logic or whatever, you tend to um, be like, right, I'm starting a song what's the tempo? It's the first thing you've got to do because you've got to set the thing and then you're you're almost kind of stuck to that in some way and you think about tempo before you've even thought about the vibe. You're like, well, is it 
fast? Is it slow? If it's 90, then it's some sort of like hip hop thing. If it's 120, it's going to be too housey, you know, and then you end up with these sort of mid-tempo tracks. And we talk about it. It was one that sort of sat at this really weird tempo and we kept the tempo to this day. It's, it's 126.905, which is a really bizarre, like <laughs> down to three decibel points on the tempo. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's sort of what gave it its energy. And, um, you know, we were very, very keen to stick to that original thing that happened in the moment. That was very important. You know, the bass and the drums, this sort of breakbeat thing, which is flow, inflow on the drums. And, and you can hear a lot of, you know, what he does in, in all his records. He's got that kind of like that sort of breaky vibe, which, you know, I hadn't really kind of done too much before. You know, we'd, we'd been a little more programmed with the drums and, you know, we'd be doing it on NPCs and like slotting it in and making it a little bit more concise. And um, I suppose it kind of gave us that freedom. And, um, this was sort of before he put all those records out last year and we just had this sort of energy to it and um, kind of remind me of the jam in some way with the sort of bass line, this, this kind of like punky energy. And yeah. we tried to keep that right to the end. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably why I like it because it straddles those kind of worlds. It brings in a lot of different worlds into one kind of three-minute track, which mm. is very exciting. So, I mean, Inflow worked on on the last record. It worked on this one a little bit. He, he sort of worked as... <sighs> just like a, a writer, really, when he did a couple of tracks. But they were just sort of things that just happened at that time, you know. It wasn't like, oh, you're going to come and work on the record. You know, we would just, like, meet up occasionally. You know, we'd, we'd work together this year as well and on bits of the Salt record and bits of the Clio record, Mother, which is an amazing album. You know, I'm blessed to have been, you know, asked to kind of come and work on those in some way. But it's just like a writing thing, you know. We'll, we'll kind of just start a little idea, you know. It might just be he'll come in for two hours and we just get the drums and the bass and we've got this talk about it, you know, a thing. Mm. And then we're kind of left with that and then flow will disappear, you know, like the unicorn that he is. And um, (laughs) I'm left with this thing which is like, right, (laughs) what the hell is this? You know, like how do I, I know there's something there. How do we uh, make it work? And, um, you know, I think with this record, it it wasn't really necessarily about making a jungle record. I think as soon as you do that, it creates this sort of like pressure that you've got to like do something that fits into what you think or what I think the project is, which just already kind of like means that you're already trying to set boundaries. And Casio taught us that it was like, Casio was never supposed to be a jungle song and same with smile. They weren't made, they were just made for the fun of it. And I think with this record, a lot of the songs that are on there are made just for the hell of making music and not to kind of fit into some, sort of sets box so i think that kind of added a whole sense of freedom to the record and it meant that like only right at the end something i learned from doing the, this mixtape i did last year which sort of inspired by flow in some way um because he was like you know i'm making these records i'm doing some of them in a day or a week and i was like well okay I'll, i'm gonna try that as an experiment not not trying to think like can i put this record out as a jungle record or can i put it out as a j lloyd record it was more can i just do it as a a way of sort of training myself to let go of what it is I'm making. And this comes out of like the creative process on the second record, which was weighty, you know, it was, it was long. It was like, whew. and I think back to the second record and we had, you know, we had happy man. We had it like 10 times before the version that you've heard, and, you know, and it's more kind of seeking, you know, it's like one of those Buddhist things. You keep looking in your life for this new level. And it's like all the time you're missing the whole thing that you're actually doing. And it comes with art, you know, if you paint, you know, sometimes it's just the the first thing that happens, which is the most pure. And um, you can miss it by thinking, oh, I'm waiting for this other thing that's 
this idea of perfection and cosmos was the sort of thing that unlocked that for me in my head and and a lot of what you know Flo as a producer had always kind of you know we've always talked about creativity and you know he's worked with danger mouse a lot and we was always having these conversations about like you know inspiration and when creativity strikes and that that moment of like being able to harness it and then finishing something in that moment rather than like just go well we got the first verse and then trying to come back and reignite that flame is is nigh on impossible sometimes you know having that second hit of creativity so it's about embracing the moment and cosmos was definitely like that you know like how can i just accept the first thing that went down and then that sort of had a compound effect into like accepting all the things that happened on loving in stereo yeah fascinating so we're going to look at three songs in depth from loving in stereo and the first of them is keep moving so maybe we should play a bit of the master so everybody can hear the song and hear what it's all about and then we're going to take it apart here we go Keep Moving by Jungle from Loving in Stereo. And that is the second track on the album. It segues beautifully from Dry Your Tears. How did this one come about? Keep Moving is probably the most sort of weirdly collaged tracks on the album. You know, I think when, when we had the the initial riff, which sort of came out of a jam section of something that was much slower and much more um, kind of random, this is sort of the, the earliest demo I've got of it, which is kind of... I don't know what it's doing, but you can hear there's this. Some lovely piano flourishes there. <laughs> and is that all you or is that Tom as well? Yeah, we were just in the studio with a, with a friend of ours called Lydia, who's sort of um, this sort of friend that played in a band called Club Kuru. And as I said, you know, like opening the kind of door to like work with new energies and new people, you know, you get inspired to do different things. And, um, you know, she's got such a great energy. And that sort of kind of came out. We were just mucking around for the sake of writing songs, not really going, oh, we're writing a jungle record. You know, it's not really, it wasn't really about that. So we had that lick, you know, the the bum, 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 over these just chords, just, just for the fun of it. And, and then that keep moving hook kind of came over the, on top of the um, the vocal. And it's like, well, okay, cool. And it kind of sat there for a while. And we... um we kind of just went, oh, what is this? I don't know, you know, but there was something there, you know, even in the hook, like you're like, okay, if you know there's something quite big there in some way, it's like, right, you've got to execute it. It's a sort of a Rick Rubin thing. You know, he says you've got to, sometimes as producers, you've got to kind of try every angle and, and eke it out. Sometimes it comes and it's just like a dash of paint and you get it first time. And other times you have to kind of go and go and go on it. And this is, I suppose, one of those songs that we had to go round and round and try a million different things. And we had basically that, that sort of chord progression and, 
you know, I've, I was always the thing of like, you can just get away with one chord progression in the song. So I kind of looped that up and we had, um, you know, it kind of developed and put like a sort of housey beat underneath it and it became quite ethereal and it was sort of sitting in this sort of a major seventh sort of chord progression. Um, it kind of sounded like this for a while. So I got a video of this as well when we like, okay, this could be something the beat drops. It wasn't necessarily right, but it's quite an early sort of bit of where we were like, okay, there's something here, there's something's going to happen. It's got something to it, it's kind of lo-fi and it's quite kind of pounding, but it's still going around this sort of major seventh sort of harmony, which makes it quite like light. And then the vocals in a weird rhythmic place as well. These are just like us. We're all just sort of singing on it, you know. So this is you, Tom and Lydia. <laughs> yeah, we're just yes. like jamming it, yeah. But then it just goes back to the hook. And just, you know, we were like, this is it. Is this it? But it doesn't quite have the, where's something happening? You know, yeah. you're like, something's happening, but it's not quite happening. Like, you know, the lyrics. It doesn't make much sense. But you can kind of hear what it's trying to do. And then we had this interesting bit, which is always worth a listen, which is one of my favorite bits. Because of the sort of what we thought was a middle eight. It's interesting to listen to it. Yeah. And this was done in East London? Yeah, this was just done in the, in the back garden. But we had obviously the hook, you know, this comes in the song. That I can live with it all, I can live with it all. And that sort of intensity in that, which is kind of interesting because those sirens and those things, they kind of start to sound like jungle to me. This sort of like mm. intensity, it's like burning electricity to it. Yeah, we had that for a while and it was sort of going, sitting with it, kind of like, oh, it kind of sounds dumb, but it, it's not done, you know? And, and when tracks sit in that space, you have to kind of take a step back and eventually from doing the Cosmos thing, which was basically this sort of 40 minute experiment where the music would just roll into each other. You know, the idea was like, whenever I kind of got bored, I would flip it up, but I couldn't go out of the project. I couldn't. It was 16 channels trying to get it back to tape, you know, like thing is with tape, you, you, you have restrictions, you have limitations. You can't just use endless things, you know, like endless possibilities often can be like the death of creativity. You kind of want to have that 16 channel thing. So I was like, well, I can only do Cosmos in 16 channels and it's all got to mix together. Those are the parameters and each track has to flow into the next idea. So around the same time I was making Cosmos, I was doing this, this 20 minute version of Keep Moving, which is the whole point of it was to kind of take that hook and reimagine the song as many times as I physically could within like the parameters, just to see what you get out of it. And that opens up the door for whole new parts to come out, whole new vibes, whole new arrangements. And we ended up with this sort of 20 minute version, which has kind of got the hook, but you can hear it. You're just mucking around, you know.
do a little thing it's kind of just building that up and seeing where I can get with it and then every so often it would switch Try to change the chords, you know, yeah. just to see where where the harmony would take you, you know. And there's actually some cool versions in here. And are you redoing the vocals each time you're? At this point, doing it's it? not a final vocal. But the funny thing is with that is that we we went into the church and. We went in with the version before that, the one that was half finished, and we recorded strings and vocals and all these things over the version I'd just played, the one that was like the sort of housey sort of. Because mm. we thought, okay, this is the version. We're going to work with this version. And um, we recorded a load of strings on it. We recorded like these group vocals doing some of the hooks. And so at that point, I was taking those little bits and had these kind of almost like samples. And then it was almost about kind of putting them back over these sections. And there's, there's a really cool one off. Yeah, this one. <laughs> I'll get my girlfriend to say stuff in French. <laughs> it sounds really cool, but it's almost like you're doing um, a soundtrack or something to a film where you know you come upon a theme and then you reinvent the theme throughout the course of the film. So this is yeah, I mean this is this is my sort of RJD2 homage one where it goes a little bit more kind of darker and a little bit, and the, but you can hear that little arpeggio which is actually used in the final track. I really like this version. Yeah. It's kind of that, I, I don't think it was the version, then there's sort of a... Yeah, that's cool, that one. So it kind of becomes quite an odyssey, goes off exploring. This is almost a Daft Punk version, but I don't know, it's not quite Daft Punk. <laughs> but it's kind of a little bit more like French electro sort of vibes. It's almost its own song and it's, it's like different bass lines. Yeah. But I, it's kind of there in some way. The riffs transpose onto the bass line. And in terms of division of labour, do you and Tom have particular things that you default to or, or are you constantly going to whatever you fancy? Yeah, I think sort of we kind of work in different ways, you know, like we've been mates for years. Sometimes I'll go off into a hole and, and just kind of do all these things late at night and it's tea that I come to in the morning for the perspective, you know, and I'll play it all to him and he'll be like, I'll be like, what's doing it? Do you know what I mean? Because I'll lose a perspective on it. but. Yeah, it kind of changes um, in bits and places. Um, but this one also has that, you know, you can hear the ending of Keep Moving. We did this version. At the end, it flips to the what we call the Western bit. Which is actually the end of Keep Moving. So it just kind of took the end of this. And I was like, well, I kind of still want to keep an aspect of that switch up in there. So it kind of took this interpolation of keep moving and put it into the actual final version of it. Yeah. I mean, that sounds great to me, you know, and I'd love to see that released in some way. Yeah. But at the same time, by stretching yourself so much and stretching an idea so much, are you creating too much for yourself to analyse and break down? Or do you then go in, chop it up and create 
the final version is that what happened well somewhere in there for sure there was the um the final version I i'll have to find it for you call it the diana ross version you can hear the snare sound it's a little bit i think we started taking the hi-hats out of it and just gave it a bit more groove but you can hear the bass like And this is where the harmonies changed, and it's got that sort of like minor harmony under the riff that we were completely lacking in this version. It's like it's almost a bit safer. It's like airy and like you know, which so the whole idea was like, how can we make keep moving move between these versions, and and we then ended up like as I say collage you know just taking the harmony from the beginning you know so when the vocals comes in after the string rise it's in that major seventh harmony which is quite like uplifting and um, but then it switches to the minor harmony it's gone to the minor which gives it it's like kind of a darker edge and I think, you know, in some way we wanted to kind of, excuse the pun, keep it moving throughout every change, you know, and have all the sounds changing but sort of keeping you still there. So, you know, when you go into the first verse here, it's like... The sounds change slightly and, and the chords slightly change and, and you get the same in the second verse. It goes to this site, bass lines change and, and you sort of... It just keeps you interested but you you got to sort of do it in a way that doesn't throw people too much it's got to be kind of seamless because if, if you change too many things people are like what the hell's going on but i think even here if you go to the middle eight you can actually hear the original version that's like the original progression which is that sort of f and it comes from this I don't know how easy it is for people to hear the kind of the nuances of yeah, it. You know, yeah. it's it's something that it's I'm, interesting though because it, in terms of your analysis, you've got to really analyze these things and, and take them apart, and using your two minds, mm. you know, bouncing each other off each other to work out which bits work and which bits work for what you're trying to achieve. And I guess part of the problem is trying to work out what you're trying to achieve. Hundred percent. Yeah, I think um, you know, even with that twenty-five minute version, whatever it is, it's. You have to leave the editor out of that process. That That's like, anything's possible, we're not going to judge it. And I think that that's really important if you're making music to just kind of get lost in it and then come back to it and be like, well, is this good or bad? I think it's that thing of being able to put anything down and also accepting the first thing that comes to you. I think that, you know, I've struggled in the past and something that I've learned is that when, when an idea comes to you, if you judge it and go, no, nah, that's not good enough, you put up this negative block, which basically closes the door on any other ideas coming through and it, it really really sort of stops that flow that natural flow so you almost have to get everything that's coming out to come out and then it kind of creates this river and i think you kind of see it in the studio you know sometimes you can work with people and they'll be like oh it's not right it's not right now and it's like well we're never going to get anything and i think that's again going back to the kind of the idea of how this record is was made and, and what we wanted from it was that just to let the natural flow happen never to block it you know and a lot of those songs not, I mean, Keep Moving is definitely the one that we went in on and, you know, developed. But a lot of the other songs are half an hour sort mm. of free flow. They've just happened. And 
I don't know. It just it makes me come out of the record and be like, I love the record because of that, because it wasn't painful. And I think ones where, you know, in the past we've had songs that like, you know, they've taken time or we've taken it's like really hard. And sometimes you can overthink it. You place too much significance on it. Like this is such an important song. And it's like at the end of the day, it's just music. And the, the more you can kind of get into that like vibe, then the easier it is to just let it all come out, I suppose. Yeah. And in terms of collaging, it's quite interesting, the ingredients that you created for yourself. So you got these kind of top end recordings of strings and various different things at the church, mm. but then combining that with your own improvisation on top or mm. with that. So it's quite a lot of scope that you've got in terms of ingredients as opposed to working maybe as you did in the past a bit with you know more kind of sample based or more mm -hmm. specific on the mpcs and, and yeah the first album you know I, I sort of describe this to people as like we had these kind of grand ideas but you know we, we didn't have any backing you know we just got to do it in a bedroom with you know one mic and an interface and however you make the sounds you have to make them and you don't have these you know synthesizers we had like one synth that we got back then which was the prophet eight the dave smith instrument i think we saw james blake playing it and was like wow, what is that? It's such a great instrument. And that sort of then led to kind of, you know, all those sort of muted trumpets, those kind of Prophet 5, um, and that's a reissue, the Prophet 10 there that kind of made it onto this record. It's got those classic kind of brass patches that everyone's like, well, yeah. And, you know, James Blake uses them really, really well. But it kind of developed, you know, and as, as we get into this new record, it, it was like we could execute those ideas with more people. It's the same with the group vocal. You know, we'd always heard our music like, kind of shouted and like you know sung with more than one people like earth wind and fire like i loved that kind of thing where you listen to a track and like the vocal changes but you're listening to the song and you don't realize the vocals changed um it's like who am i listening to but the melodies carried you through and the voice is like you've added more voices really subtly or or it's a girl singing it now and you're kind of like and i suppose the libertines sort of did that and like also the beatles i know if you're like if you're really into the beatles you'll know who's singing you know and the same with libertines once you really dig into it when you first come to it i couldn't tell if it was pete or carl half mm. the time but it doesn't really matter because you're just enjoying the music it doesn't become a problem so i think we quite like that kind of mystery to it you know and uh going into the church and doing the stuff with the strings and our friends and the, and the vocals just gave it this like this sort of elevated energy to it you know these strings you just can't do strings on a computer you just can't get that energy that realness to it but if you do everything too real and you just do everything too kind of pristine it loses its like its grittiness or its sort of homemade nature to it so i think it's always us like sort of balancing that sort of feeling out you know mm, yeah Fascinating. Um, we're going to look at three songs. So the next one we're going to look at is All of the Time. Should we move on from Keep Moving and um, <laughs> just reprise the master in a different section, maybe near the end, maybe that would be a good way to round mm. it up. It is Keep Moving by Jungle, and we're going to look at all of the time next, but we're just going to take a quick break before that. 
You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labeling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers, and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organize set lists, and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favorite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So the next song we're going to dig into from Jungle's Loving in Stereo is All of the Time. And I think Josh is going to press play. Jungles Loving in Stereo, and we were talking, Josh, about vocals. And there's a lot of vocals on, <laughs> on, on your records. You know, so many different voices. Mm. And even from the very start, you know, and, and obviously the essence of that is you mm. and Tom singing together. But when you look at the credits, especially for this new record, there's a lot of different personnel dipping in and doing different things. But a lot of different singers, male, female, all combined. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that that was something you were aspiring to. You liked that kind of element of mystery um, mm. that it has. We, um, you know, we did the first record, obviously it was just me and T and like, you know, we didn't have the facilities to do like big recordings. So like, you know, and you never really know what it sounds like until you hear it. That's the really weird thing about music. Like 
you can have a demo and like think that that's the height of what the sonic capabilities of that track is until you hear it with more people you hear it with strings on you know when you hear something with strings on you're like well i did the midi strings but, but wow that's just something else and same thing happens with the vocals you know once we kind of get in a room with loads of people and they sing back the vocals it's like oh i didn't even imagine it could have sounded like that so i think that there's this whole sort of discovery that we've kind of gone on with it it's like what does it sound like with different people singing it and groups of people singing it and it kind of feeling more open in that way there's only so much and i can't sound like a girl maybe i do sound like a girl maybe i don't i don't know we sing high pitch we sing low pitch but there's so many different tones of vocals that kind of give it kind of a lot more of a, a sonic depth you know it's almost like a a group of people and then not a group of people and you know i think we like that kind of journey but all of the time is one that sort of sounds like a sample a lot of people ask like what's that sample which for us is kind of like a compliment i suppose because you know we've always wanted our music to sound like half sampled half not but i suppose when you get into actually doing sampling you can end up making something and it being amazing and then you get to the end of the process like let's put it on the album and then somebody goes no you can't it's not yours yeah <laughs> and then you're like oh no and you know we've had that before we've we've sampled stuff and it's not made it to records because you know you get to the kind of sorting it out sort of stage and it's somebody's going no you can't use that and you're like oh so you kind of get to a point in your career where you're like well let's just make the samples you know and, and to do that you just have to use the sort of the right mics and the right sort of eqing and sort of kind of go into the past and listen to listen to records to get that feeling and i think all of the time is something that is a track that has sort of a little bit of that element you know for us it's um something we discussed maybe on the radio um recently was this idea that the track was like an old school track like what if a band from the 60s or 70s had heard house music or garage but they didn't have the the musical instrument didn't have 808s you know they mm. weren't invented and i think the beat has that you know um this sort of kind of came out of a jam and we had that all other time and and Liddy was singing that, and I was like, okay, cool, this is amazing. I was on the vibes and stuff, doing down, 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 which I thought was like a hot chip thing in my head. I kind of was hearing Boy From School in that. Right. Even though it doesn't sound anything like it. And, yeah, we, we kind of went away, and, and the drums were the last thing to happen on this track, and it was kind of had the music for a while and um, had this other bass line on it, and the drums of the bass were something I did at home. And it was actually programmed using, um, like, acoustic sounds, so... Because I kind of wanted it to sound like it was being drummed, so it fit in with tracks like "Talk About It" and had that sort of old school feeling. But it, it was we were putting these kind of skips in, you know, the tka, tka, sort of kind of things, which I suppose like Jamie XX would be doing quite a lot, and you can can hear on house and stuff like that. So it's kind of got this sort of housey garage bounce to it, you know, garage. Um, and it sits at one thirty again, which is quite it's quite a fast tempo for Jungle. We'd never really done anything like up there with that tempo, and it. You know, this is the track we wanted to come back with. I was like, all of the time is the one I want people to hear. That's the one that I feel has this this energy that, that kind of encapsulates the album. It's not, you know, talk about it, for example, it's almost like Smile from the second record. It's got this like frantic energy. It's mm. not It's not as settled. This is kind of groovy. This is more like it knows where the two and the four is. And And for us, it was just about kind of getting that across in a way that kind of felt like it was somewhere between you know an old school track and something kind of sounding new and yeah that's sort of how it kind of came about yeah um in terms of those vocals then you know you, you were saying use the right mics i mean how do you use these personnel do you record them you know three people singing to one microphone or do you individualize them and and it, it's different on the on different tracks i think and and there's 
there's an element of like sometimes sticking to the demos, you know, like and sticking to like some of those recordings are the first recordings of the actual idea because you will record it. It will have such an energy in that moment and it's very difficult to um, recapture that. Like once you've heard it and you've got excited about it, and this happens all the time with vocals, you'll record something and you'll be like, wow, it makes me feel something. And then you'll go and try and redo it. You're trying to recapture that energy and it, it just it's just not the same because it's like overthought at that point. As soon as you like, there's something that's off the cuff, you know, it's just played and, and then when you try and come back to it and do it again, it's like, it's lost its whatever it is it had. And so you end up just keeping bits on there and, you know, sometimes in a lot of jungle songs, there's bits, and like, I can hear even bits in there where like the lyrics are implied, but they're not actually, you know, pronounce, pronounced, pronounced you or know? enunciated clearly. Yeah, because I think yeah. like when you go back and pronounce them, they they give too much, you know. And like, I used to be a massive Kings of Leon fan. You know, their first records were just like amazing. You know, loved uh, Youth and Young Manhood. And the thing I loved about it most was the fact that I didn't understand a word he was saying. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it oh, was totally, so yeah. mumbled. And so, like, what is this? You know, and I, I think I like that on records. And, and when you hear records that are, like, over-enunciated, you're just like, oh, it's too obvious. You know, there has to be a little bit of mystery to it, I suppose. Are you able to individually play any of those vocal tracks for all of the time? Yeah, so this was the original thing. You can hear the clapping in the room. All of the time. So who's in the room at this moment? I think all of us were in the room, but Lids and um, Rosette were singing. But, I mean, that came from the original sort of jam. Um, so they're just clapping along to themselves? Yeah, yeah, we just, yeah. I think we just finished um, this full sort of full-on jam of it, which is, sounds very different. It's just it's come out of this other session, but it just came out of this. It's just live drums and just mm. like bass line and stuff like that. It's got no structure, no lyrics. Everyone's just mucking about, you know. Just little bits and pieces, you know. And then I suppose it's uh, our job to kind of take that away and make it make sense a little bit. And, yeah. um, you know, we had these kind of vibraphone parts which kind of came out of the original session. You hear the drums bleeding in the background. You kind of leave those in, but then you kind of put other parts on top of it to make it kind of feel like a... Um, so yeah, I don't like Lou taking the original source out sometimes. I feel mm. like you take that out, you take out the actual, the essence of what made it what it was. And um, yeah, we kind of did, started programming some drums, you know, we kind of took out the original drums. You hear a little bit of the original drums in the, um, I think it's the middle eight. These are kind of what the original drums will sound like. <laughs> and everyone's just shouting in the room. They're almost not kind of tight enough for... <laughs> we're just going crazy when he's doing a drum solo that's great just shouting at George <laughs> and is the shouting still in the, the track yeah yeah, yeah. it's always oh, in the drums yeah, I was just yeah. shouting at him to do fills I was like <laughs> we yeah. came off the uh, vibraphone and just it's got that energy to it but then you know we kind of came back and started kind of programming these sort of more kind of parts that were a little bit more just give it a little bit more of a, a solid foundation But yeah, so it's just something that kind of, eh, the core of the track was always there with, with all of the time and it just kind of took a little bit of time to um, flesh out exactly the structure and, mm. you know, it was like organised chaos in some way. And um, I think the kind of, the message of the song started to weirdly be about death, but in a very euphoric way, you know, it was almost like 
this passing of time, you know, this thing of like, kind of get feelings of like cloud atlas and stuff, you know, when like generations and generations kind of pass and like time becomes very emotional. It's, it's, it's very weird if you think about your grandparents and their grandparents, like these legacies kind of start to have that feeling. And I think it's about death. And, and the weird thing about songs for us is like, we kind of write the lyrics in a way that, that kind of are not overly specific because I feel like we want to, we want people to be able to paste their own, take their own things from it. So mm. they, they're broad enough for people to find their own meanings in there. I think if we kind of make them too much about a specific day or a specific journey, then people are like, oh, I can't relate to it. But for me personally, I think all of the time is about death, whether it's about the death of a friendship or the death of a person in your life. It's like, in the end, it will sort of be all right, or there is some other place, you know, it's like there's references to like heaven and it's kind of like beaming up and yeah. kind of ascending to something. And I think you get to this chorus, which is like, you know, it's all all right all of the time. Yeah, I mean, it is uplifting, but you know, part of that ingredient is the vocal, mm. I think. And that's an interesting thing because with the style of vocal that you record for something like all of the time, it ends up being a kind of almost a gospel type feel you know the idea that it's a group of people singing together mm. which you it's, know helps create that uplift and, and each track is sort of different as i said like you know for example this one came together after we'd finished that session with all, all the singers in the church so in some way we were replicating that and and this song sort of made up of like me and lids and tom just sort of tracking up the vocals to kind of get that thing there's, there's always two ways of doing the kind of group choir vocals mm. you can either do it with a group of people around one or two mics or five mics, however many you want to do it. And then you've got to do it in that, in that moment, which you hear on stuff like talk about it, you hear on keep moving and a lot of all the other songs. And then with that session had passed and we were basically with this one, just tracking the vocals up. And what you have to do is you have to do loads of different voices to kind of get the different tone textures. So you'll be doing low ones and like high ones yeah. and like, you know, like witch vocals, which is kind of funny. Cause have, it, have you got some of those? Yeah, yeah. You want to hear some witch vocals. So is that just Lydia on her own or is that with, yeah, with Rosetta on that? And right. then we kind of track those up. There's a little bit more. I think we put the, another demo in there. And then this all all right part comes in over the top, which kind of gives it that kind of bite. And it's like we're just sort of screaming shit. Just kind of blend into one at some point. I don't really think you hear the all all right part, but it mm. gives it that that sort of cut in the chorus. Um, we have a computer meltdown. Apple, if you're listening, send me a new one. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird with 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 um with computers. It's funny because I feel like computers carry the energy of um a record. You know, you start with like I try and get a fresh computer and at the beginning because it just mm. you work them so hard. By the end of it, they're like. And it happens with the projects once you, you know, you start with a, this one's got, you know, maybe 60, 70 tracks because there's a lot of individual vocals stacked up in this one. And by the end of it, it's like, it's not having any of it. So is Kernel that panic. If anyone knows how to sort of kernel task panic out, please, please hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> so it won't play the witch vocal. Is You can't get Oh, that. the witches are yeah. in there. They're, they're in there. But I can't, um, it's cramping up the computer right. at the moment. We'll but, um, I guess the other question was in terms of you were talking about how you know you like the idea that that some of the sounds and some of the vocals that you create sound like they could have been sampled from a, an old record, mm. and that in order to create that leeway for yourself, you have to record the vocals in a certain way. Mm -hmm. 
is that making sure that you don't put too much modern compression? It's or? like, um, I mean, a lot of it's kind of the breakup of the, the kind of preamp. Um, you know, I think from my limited knowledge, <laughs> it's it's a type of mic, you know, you tend to use like older mics, you know, whether it's like a 67, a Neumann 67 or a, or a U87, something that's old, you know, and that has that feeling. Uh, and then for me, it's just about kind of pushing the the preamp and the compressor past what is normal or safe. And I think, you know, you listen to those old records, it's like, you know, they, they get made so quickly, they get made, you know, you'd only buy the studio time and, and the band would come in and then they'd be like, you know, uh, it's interesting, someone talked to me about mixing. They were saying that mixing was something that they, that was put in place to kind of fix records. And like everybody mixes a record now, but mixing was originally to fix EQ problems because they would rush the recording process because obviously studio time was so expensive. And I think that those electric sort of performances, when they clip the mics, basically, and they clip the preamps, because they come in, there's such high energy, the engineers have set it up, and then the singer goes for it, and they've got the take, and it's just that hot kind of um, tube distortion that um, I think is it's kind of hard to replicate these days. You know, you can get plugins to do it, or you just drive the, the thing, or, you know, it's almost like you sing louder than the compressor will allow and um, it kind of crunches up in that sort of nice organic um, analog sort of way. And I think everything's become very kind of like too nice, too good, you know, and, um, and digital. And, you know, you could argue that the last great music was made in, in terms of sonics, you know, in terms yeah. of the actual sonics, I think when everything went digital, it kind of just loses that, that warmth. So anything to recreate that, that moment, I mean, we don't record on tape. And I don't know. You need you need a you need a serious tape engineer. Like it's just I have so much respect for people who did it on tape, because you know you hear stories of Pink Floyd and and John Lecky and like with all the tape going around the studio and be like, which bit? I don't even I don't even know where you start with that. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like, I want to go in on that point. You're like they're like cutting the tape together. Yeah, and it's just we've got limitless possibilities with computers, which is also like to the creative detriment in some way because you can have a thousand tracks if you wanted. Where do you stop? Yeah, yeah. And how do you know, say with all of the time, how do you know when to stop? I think it's a feeling. I think you have to go on a feeling and also the clock runs out at some point. You know, you have to abandon all, all, all art is sort of abandoned. You just have to let go of it. And I, I think it's like, the interesting thing is like when you put a deadline in, it does something to the process. And you, you'd be surprised how much you can actually do before that deadline. It's almost like you just, we're just sitting around waiting for other stuff to happen and then in you put that deadline in, you get all your homework done in the last 10 minutes. You're like, oh, well, I could have done it in 10 minutes. <laughs> but it's that pressure that kind of brings on that sort of, that vibrancy. You know, it's the same with the lights. For Brixton, we just did a couple of Brixton shows and like the lights were like, you know, oh God, these aren't quite finished, you know. And, and we were doing it 10 minutes before doors open, doing all the queues, like the last queues. And it's that, it's that pressure yeah. that brings on like, the cutthroat decisions which kind of take it to its completion the focus and it's yeah it's like an art gallery you know you let people do the art gallery you imagine someone going around going straighten that up straighten that up. the drink's ready yeah go and you're, you're off you know and um there's a kind of magic to that yeah so jay is there anything else we want to hear in all of the time or you'd like to share one bit um i really do like is the middle eight with the um we've managed to get hold of a, a moog one well paul had one in the church and we're like, oh, wow, this is like the pinnacle of Moog um, or Moog, however you like to call it. 
and we had this part which was in the kind of the middle eight and it was just sort of just in a weird way reminding me of something that the Chemical Brothers might have on their record it was sort of out of context for that idea that the track was this sort of 60s or 70s vibe thing it kind of really pulls it into this slightly more modern um, thing it's this sort of sound here It's quite um, weakest link at the end. That bit. <laughs> <laughs> and let's hear it in the song. Let's... In the song. Here we go. But yeah, it just it also reminds me of that cool in the gang track. You know, the synth. Is it jungle? What's that? They've got. Yeah, the scene goes music. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps going up. It's really, it's a cool part. So um, we're going to reprise a bit of all of the time and then move on to our third song in just a moment. The next song we're going to look at is Bonnie Hill from the album Loving in Stereo. So Bonnie Hill is is one of my favourites. I think it's one of your favourites as well. There's lots of different elements For sure. in this song. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's something that probably is the oldest track on, on the record in terms of, I think it got originally formed when we were making the uh, second record, but it never quite got finished. And there was something that just kept popping up, kept popping up, and we just couldn't let go of it. But it was never really... We never really knew what it was. It was just had that kind of beat and that bass line. And something we worked on with um, Andrew Wyatt, who um, is in Mike Snow. And we went to Bonnie Hills, actually, up a hill in L.A. So that's what was named after a, a hill in the hills of L.A. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we went up in there and made this sort of like bump, 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 bump. Andrew sort of came up with that little bass line. We kind of came up with this sort of groove. And we had that sitting there for a while and we didn't really know what to do with it and then we had this sort of melody on it and and then we just basically put the strings on it and put some other bits of vocals on there but the best bit of this song is probably the the flute solo and the sax solo back to back at the end which i think for us is a little bit outrageous but kind of is the best bit about it it was this sort of like untamed moment of expression that i think that previous jungle records had lacked and something that we were definitely looking for, these these moments of sort of individualism in, in the instruments that sort of just elevate it to a new a new level. It's a little bit Ron Burgundy, I've been told. <laughs> and then the, then the end sax is, you know, it's a little bit Baker Street, so <laughs> there's part of me like, we can't do this. It's it's almost it's almost verging on the, the edge of sort of 80s cheesy, you know, and uh, but at the same time, it's so raw and, and so cool. We'll start with the... Um, Should the, we hear the, the finished version, the mastered version first? Yeah. And then maybe you can talk us through it as we explore it. It's a 
that is Bonnie Hill and how it ended up on Loving in Stereo, but we're going to discover how you got there. <laughs> um, and one of the things that we love to do on Take Notes is to kind of build a track up as all the different parts mm. are created. But also, I mean, you've been playing us some great demos too. And, and do you have any demo type things for Bonnie Hill? Bonnie Hill, you just go back to the beginning, don't you? I mean, it's sort yeah. of... Slightly different vocal. Yeah. It's slightly different pace, but also this has a nice kind of band feel to it as well. Yeah, it's it's sort of got made up out of, you know, these kind of quite boom bappy drums, you know, that were sort of going. You know, and there's not much to them, they're just quite on the beat. And then the bass line obviously, which which kind of makes the song. You can hear in the bass line the pickups pick up part of the room and part of the demo from old songs. Little bits of yeah. the vocal just coming yeah. through the pickups because the... And then this, this Mellotron piano sound which just gives it that offbeat. And this session, this um, song began in LA, mm -hmm, but yeah. was it completed in London? No, yeah, it was completed a lot later. It was a, um, it was kind of a, a last minute kind of thing, but we had this sort of part of it and we had the guitars that kind of come in, this gives it. It's just basically built around that. And then obviously the vocal. extra vocals coming in at the end there which this is something I really wanted to do on a track was have like one one person sings the first line then two people on the second line three people on the third line four people on the thing and so it kind of goes from that single T-Mac vocal to having like yeah. more people like getting to this sort of chorus which is like oh, I don't. which is sort of the call between um, the girls and the boys kind of goes over this sort of when you first get the introduction of these, this string part, which is really, really lovely. And was this recorded in the church? Yeah, yeah, this was put on after. And the funny thing is with the strings, we always try and make them sound worse than they actually sound. <laughs> so you record them and they sound pristine and then I kind of take them away and, and kind of um, mess them up a little bit so they, they sound a little bit more broken and old you know mm. i think um the way we record modern music now everything comes in so clean it's all the ad converters and everything is so clean that's what the company is you know you don't you don't get um all these kind of audio companies going trying to sell their stuff on how like broken the sound is do you know what i mean but that's that's what we're looking for we're looking yeah. for those kind of imperfections in it you know i would buy a mic because it sounds bad i think you know and, <laughs> yeah. and, and um you know there's that uh, trying to get that crunch into the vocal it's it's a simple song, this one. I think that, you know, Jungle tend to kind of put, you know, it's quite well bit up, the music, and I think for us it was like, can we do these songs with three parts? Can you do it with a piano, a bass, and a kick and a snare, you know, and, and just have that in the vocal and have that be the kind of mainstay of what the song's about? And I think Bonnie Hill is probably one that works really well like that. There isn't too much going on. It's really subtle. There's a little bit of brass that kind of comes in. And I've always been a fan of, like, mixing the... the 
orchestral stuff with guitars and trying to kind of blur that line of what it actually is and you kind of get that in this section um, which is kind of this first instrumental bit which is like a mix it kind of came from this guitar riff that I had sitting around which is on its own is probably something like <laughs> is it even a guitar anymore I'm confusing myself which is kind of weirdly psyche. And it, for me, it's like trying to take one sound and then layering it in a way that just means it's still one part, but you're not sure what it is. If you take the guitar and you add like a profit, you know, three times, so you take this part here, which is just the synth doing it. And you add that to the guitar. And then you add the brass in, which soloed gives it this kind of warmth. And then you add a little flute into that. Then you kind of get them all playing together. It starts to kind of blend into one. One sound for us. Yeah. Which, which keeps the simplicity of it. Be but, like, what? Well, what is it? I don't know what it is. At the same time, it's mysterious. Is it a guitar? Is it a thing? Yeah. And <laughs> it maybe, I mean, you were saying that in essence for this song, it seems quite straightforward in terms of the elements, but maybe that's why you felt able to have a flute solo and a sax. Yeah, I think solo. it gets into this end bit, and we were experimenting. Um, I know T Mac was playing the flute a little bit, and we were, he, here's his flute part, which is we put through some crazy stuff. No, not that one, sorry, that's the good one. <laughs> Flute delay, this is us trying it. It's kind of distorted, and it kind of, we had that on the track for a while, and then we were in the in the church, and I was like, does anyone, does anyone play flute? Can anyone do a flute solo? Is it, does anyone play sax? And this guy called Martin Williams is an amazing uh, ranger. And, uh, and this was to the string players that you were saying this <laughs> yeah no he there, there was a this was the brass and the oh, right, okay. so uh, and then he comes in and, and does this sort of part there's here it was just took off So Martin just stepped up to the plate and gave you that. Yeah, amongst other bits. <laughs> but then, you know, he picked up the sax and pulled this out of the bag as well. And I, I love this room sound on it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a great way to end it. Mm, brilliant. Um, before we move on to we always ask these questions for everybody who comes on tape notes but before we move on to that I mean is there anything else in Bonnie Hill that we should dig out well I know you're talking about was it Imagine Dragons and um, doing those bits with their mouth we always, yeah we've always done a lot of mouth horns on our tracks and uh, then we kind of track them up with uh, real horns but we always had this like haunting mouth horn part which is quite fun in here with someone like me this sort of siren just reminded me of being in like New York with yeah. like a you can kind of hear it. 
which is kind of fun. And is that a real siren, no, or is that you? That's me. Your, your, your amazing siren <laughs> that's, that's impersonation. I mean, that been, is I've, incredible. I've been doing sirens. For yeah, because we were telling you about Dan from uh, Imagine Dragons and how he, he yeah. sings a lot of the instrument parts sometimes on his demos. Uh, but wow, that's a very authentic sounding siren. And, and here's the real brass copying it. Oh, there's my, my original mouth horn. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> That's amazing. That's funny. It's funny. But it, it's just to get the idea down at the beginning, you know. I always remember first working in a studio with a guy called Barney Barnacott, who had worked in some old Kasabian records and had worked with Jim Abyss as well. And uh, I was about 21 back then. And um, he was always like, you know, I'd be like, oh, I've got this amazing idea. Like, I need to put this thing down. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know how to make it. And then he was like, well, just do it with your mouth, you know. And, and it kind of got this kind of mentality into me, which was like, just do the sound with the mouth to get the idea down. And then you can kind of, at least it's there, you know, rather than if you have that instinctive kind of moment where you're like, wow, okay, I need to put this thing down, this, this siren. If I was then mucking around for an hour trying to replicate that sound, I would have lost the... Mm. The flow of it and i think that goes back to what you were talking about with with dan from imagine dragons yeah totally yeah the, you just that. have to kind of you've kind of got to get it all down in in the first half hour otherwise it's hard to get back into it yeah and when you had that conversation originally with that guy was that early days of jungle when no was that... it, was, it was old i mean we'd been in failed bands for years and, and bands that sort of tried to make it and semi make it and um you know, I think at the end of the day, you're just learning from those experiences. You know, mm. I took so much from that and being in a studio and in old bands, we'd worked with other producers, you know, the songs maybe or the timing wasn't right or the project wasn't right. And But you learn so much from those moments and, and those amazing people that we've worked with along the way. Yeah. And was that always with Tom? Was he always your partner in Bits crime? and pieces, yeah. yeah. Like, um, you know, we, we, we played in bands, you know, from school, you know, it was a thing that we did just to hang out. You know, we'd just be going around each other's houses wanting to be in the strokes or some stuff like that, you know, or wanting to be in the thrills or, and then, you know, you get an MPC a bit later on, you're listening to Diller and you're like, oh, I just want to make instrumental hip hop and <laughs> yeah, it, whatever inspires you. And I think it's important to be inspired. And I think it's really important to kind of follow those things. And I think a lot of people kind of think that like when you make a music, you can be quite snobby with it. You can be like, well, you've got to make original stuff, you know, and everything's got to be original. And I watched this thing the other day, which is, it was um, this documentary called Everything is a Remix. And I kind of believe that. I think that everything is a remix. I don't think there is, you know, I think in, it, originality comes from the mix of all those influences that then create something new from that, you know, whether, you know, I don't think the same people who make music are going to be listening to exactly the same thing. So you might take a little bit from there. You might subconsciously take something from there. It's like every melody. You, you'll sing a melody and you'll be like, oh, I've sort of heard it before. But like, it's not, you know, and... um I think it's really important that everybody kind of keeps mixing these things up and taking from different places. And a lot of what we do is we, we tend not to listen to music when we're making music because I feel like if I go and directly listen, I'll know it too well. And for me, I think it's about just sort of mem remembering a track that like I heard when I was eight or 10 or something like that. You know, what did my mum play me then? Or I'm hearing this sort of, yeah, don't know much about it, um, yeah. like Sam Cooke or something like that. And I've just got it in the back of my mind, but I can't remember how it goes. I can't remember what the instruments were, but it's a feeling, you know, and then you, you take that and that feeling gets passed into your music. Yeah, fascinating. 
And so, I mean, you kind of went through all these different evolutions to end up <laughs> in jungle with jungle. For sure. I think it's a, um, you have to fail. Like, you have to fail. You have to be willing to fail. I think, like, you know, must have failed 10 times before something kind of stuck with it. And you learn things different times, you know. And, and the beginning of jungle was like, you know, we'd been in a band called Born Blonde. And um, I just remember, like, having to ask people for, um, to come to the shows you know and that kind of thing of like oh yeah here's my flyer come to the gig please come to the gig and the promoter would be like every person you get in you get two pounds of this ticket you know when we started jungle I was like we ain't gonna ask anyone to like the music you know i'm not gonna do that anymore and that's what started it off we didn't tell anybody about it when it started i didn't tell my mum didn't tell any of my friends and there was such kind of beauty to that and with music you know when you, you play it to somebody you're like hey listen to this track listen to this track and they don't quite get it like you got it because I feel like with music, you have to find it yourself. You have to kind of be the one that discovers that emotional moment for you. You know, if someone's like, oh, John, 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 listen to this, please play this, please play this. You're like, oh. but if you'd have stumbled upon it, you might have a completely different reaction to it. I think that David Byrne book, um, How Music Works, talks mm. about that. It's all about emotional state and emotional being at the time of like hearing those tunes. And um, for us at the beginning, I think we wanted people just to kind of discover it and if they liked it they liked it like come on board and if you don't like it cool you know what i mean like i don't don't care and i think in previous bands it always been like how do we get everyone to love it <laughs> you know it's just trying too hard so for us from the beginning it was like take a back step and let the music do the work yeah yeah that's really interesting um and i think that will play into uh, one of the two questions that we like to ask everybody who comes on take notes but before we get on to those would it be possible to build up Bonnie Hill and just kind of run through the track really quickly um, as we introduce all those different elements? Yeah, yeah, of course we can. So, I mean, we're going to start with the root of everything, which is, um, for me, is the drums. Always starts with the beat. So we have this little drum beat here. We'll just start on the chorus. We've got the finger snaps in this adding something got the bass line there the guitars that come in and I think this is second verse now so we've got these guitar chops which is just a little um, offbeat going through an RE501 which is a um, Roland um, chorus echo which I've had since the beginning of time which I love this Mellotron piano classic sound decapitator on it it just gives it that crunch that old school feeling got our little Hammond organ just doing those off bits probably don't even hear that addition at this point because it's sort of blended but if you want to hear the organ on its own it's like it's very small but it goes very nicely with these so those all on top of each other and then I think this is the girls verse got other people we've got this little this little aha uh -huh. <laughs> i don't know how that made it in there literally so i think it's either me or tom going <laughs> but it sounds like aha uh -huh in the track <laughs> uh -huh. reminded me of something from eminem i don't know why <laughs> little string flicks that come in as well don't really hear them that well but it's very light touch there you go and that's the verse 
I can do the same in the chorus as well, which is a little bit more going on. So we go back to this end chorus, starting with those drums again. At this point, we've got the extra tambourine in, just giving that accent on the one. Another tambourine at the end of the bar, just gives it that offbeat accent. The finger clicks, of course. The bass, again. And then the guitars, and that guitar chop we had. And then this other guitar part, turn that bit up for you. There's just a bit of a noodle. Got this Mellotron pianos, that organ, and the flute delay, which I mentioned earlier. Just gives it these little accents coming in. And we've got the flute playing the lead melody which sits under the vocal, just giving it another. Got another little backup flute there. I don't think we've got any strings in this part. Yeah, and I think we've just got all the vocals, I think, at this point. That's it. It's okay to feel and then all it does, it needs a mix from that point. Right. Still sounding like a demo to me. <laughs> but that's also when you say, is any, can anybody do a flute solo? <laughs> yeah, well, you get around that outro and that's when the flute solo comes in, doesn't it? <laughs> Off we go. I think you can really hear the room of the church in that. There's nothing on that. It's literally the raw stem from the room. got its natural space to it mm. it's a big room isn't it with high high ceiling yeah i don't know where this pit of magic came from try recreating that live <laughs> <laughs> what did you do you've done yeah. some shows recently yeah, did you, yeah, yeah lydia, do lydia does it she's she's, no. she's incredible she just um wow she's like i'll learn the flute solo i don't play flute she's learned it so <laughs> that's a special person to have in your band <laughs> yeah amazing Thank you for rounding that up. Now, these no two questions we ask everybody. I mean, one you've kind of touched on, which we'll go back to, but tech. I mean, we've discussed various different tech. I mean, is there a particular piece of equipment that you can't work without or can't live without? Wow, a specific bit of equipment. I think, I was thinking you, you can make anything work. Like, I, I think that's the kind of joy of it. I quite like the idea of going away with just one thing and having to get every sound out of it. I think that's like a a nice kind of confinement to have but the mac is a mac isn't it like mm. you you can really do everything with it you could make a whole record just with the laptop i think even with no mics you could make a record with it it's kind of like the tape machine is the modern day tape machine is it's it is what it is but in terms of something a little bit not lame like a mac sorry apple <laughs> i do i do like these kemper profilers and they're like amp profilers you can basically have most amp sounds in there but you don't need the amplifier or the microphone and you can put anything through it you know it's a great way to crunch up sounds and you know there's loads of effects built into it and it's almost like this all-in-one box which is kind of just gives you you can put vocals through it you can put anything through it so i do really like that mm, very interesting and um we like to get advice from people or find out if they've had advice along the way that has really mm. stood them in good stead I mean, you mentioned about the learning curve of going through different bands and 
yeah, um, meeting yeah. different people and kind of arriving to a point where things really kind of came together for you. But mm. I mean, did you have advice from anybody or, or having learned all that, do you have advice to pass on? Yeah, I think um, advice. I mean, yeah, I think you take and you pick and choose what you hear from other people. But I mean, the one bit of advice that I think works really well is, is not to overthink it. You know, it's really easy to get stuck in. And not, not to be scared of it, I think fear will hold you back in anything in life. I think it's almost life advice more than anything. You know, fear will stop you from living out your true potential. It will keep you in a box. And for me, I think it's about not overthinking it and just getting it done. Actually doing something about it is, is you know, your life is in your own hands. And if you want to make a track, you can't just think it out. And it's something that I got taught in, in, I did this psychotherapist session and I just did a one-off one and, and he kind of opened my mind to something that I'd spent my whole life struggling with. You know, I came from sort of a kind of broken family and um, kind of troubles at home in that way. And I think when you come from a broken family, you, you tend to kind of go up in your head and you tend to kind of, from an early age, think you can fix the problems by thinking about them. And what he said to me was you need to we need to get you out of your head and into your body and it's kind of a spiritual thing but it's true it's like you can end up overthinking things rather than just feeling and being them and i think this what this whole record loving hysteria is about it's coming out of your head and into your body and trying to feel things so my advice to people is feel it don't think it very good piece of advice i mean in terms of i mean you were talking how you know you started playing in bands from a young age and uh, you know you and Tom would go to each other's houses after school and play music together. Did you have any formal structure around that? I mean, did you take music as a class or did you go on to study it in any formal way? Yeah, I mean, I did bits of it. I kind of felt like the best way of learning was to experiment yourself. Like, I have to play it. I have to feel it and play it to kind of learn. I feel like every time that I've been in a lesson or a school, it's kind of gone over my head. And, and I think the best learning for music is playing with people and, and learning that way or just being involved in it and, and getting your hands on and making mistakes yourself and not kind of like trying to learn it or you can't learn music from a book you know you have to play music and listen to songs and play those songs and like work out how they did it and what makes those songs what why do you feel those songs you know and, and then you work it out and you go actually it's quite simple you know it's only these two chords and that's kind of crazy like you know, Casio, I suppose is inspired by that Fleetwood Mac track which just goes back and forth between those two chords and you're like well, if they've got two chords in that song, like, can we do a song with two chords? And yeah, I think you can. So it's, um, you can do a song with one chord. And I think it's just about feeling it. Yeah, yeah. Josh, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been brilliant to come in here to Jungle HQ um, <laughs> and see you at work, have a look at your Mac and see you at play. Because in some ways, you know, you're surrounded by all these different instruments here, you know, and, and this is your playroom, you know, mm. where the two of you come in and do all this stuff. Um we're going to let you go, but we're going to play out one more track from the album, a kind of outro song. Which should we go for? Okay, I think we should go for, let's play out Can't Stop the Stars. It's the end of the album and it's it's quite an emotional, uh, full-on track. So let's, let's play that one. Fantastic. This is it. This is Jungle Den with Can't Stop the Stars. Thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the episode if you have a moment do tell your friends and leave us a review it all really helps thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show i'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes it relies on your support if you'd like to donate please head to our website 
To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Take Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.